You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual, but this time on the road, is ITK Principal David Leach. Um, David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, uh, Giles. Uh, uh, recording here from uh, Moonlit Goulburn, uh, the uh, home of Angus Taylor. Uh, and thinking about electricity as always, and I trust all our listeners are, are well as well. Well, I guess the big question from all our listeners, um, David, hearing you, you are in the home of um, Angus Taylor in the heart of his electrical fume, you must have a secret meeting with them lined up in the morning. Uh, well, knowing Angus, it would be secret because I don't think he does too much in the public. But in fact, uh, it's so secret, I, he hasn't even got around to telling me about it yet. But uh, more seriously, Giles, uh, we've got a great interview. Uh, I think the, uh, the Business Renewable Centre, which has actually done a great job since it started out, and uh, we've, we've seen a pretty good year in terms of uh, corporate PPAs, purchase power agreements, and according to the survey they've released and, and the interview you've done, it's likely to be another good year coming up. Absolutely. Well, it seems to me that the um, this, the, 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 um, this centre sort of acts a bit like a matchmaker between uh, developers and off-takers, so buyers and customers, and proved wonderful, wonderfully successful. So look, I think without any further ado, we'll listen to the interview. It's with Chris Briggs from the Institute of Sustainable Futures, one of the three key organisations that, um, that make up this centre. Chris Briggs, um, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me. So you've released a report. It's a combined report from your organisation, the Institute for Sustainable Futures, WWF and Climate KIC, which together make up the um, Business Renewable Centre of Australia. And uh, one of the things that you do is to track corporate PPAs, power purchase agreements, which are a crucial element of um, wind and solar farm development. And it seems like um, we're having a bumper year in 2020. Um, what have you found? Yeah, that's right. Uh, look, I think renewable energy investment was expected to slump in 2020 following the, the achievement of the RET, um, which, which happened amongst retailers. But it was a, a record year for corporates and governments signing deals with solar and wind farms with around 1,000 megawatts of, of PPAs signed to date. Uh, which is a record since this market started in around 2016, really. Is it reasonable to say then, I mean, as you sort of said, that the um, the wind and solar investment was supposed, was expected to sort of um, fall uh, quite considerably in 2020. It might be down, but nowhere near as much as thought. Is it fair to say then that this, um, this corporate PPA demand has actually kind of rescued the wind and solar sector? Well, that and um, the big PPA signed by Cleanco and Queensland, record solar and wind PPAs, together, the two of them have, have kept the market going. Um, yet on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis, corporate PPAs are around a third or a half of the PPA market. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, corporate PPAs are playing a really important role in keeping the clean energy transition moving forward at a time when we might have gone into one of the slumps that we've we've sort of seen periodically over the uh, over the last over the last decade, so a combination then of corporates and sort of state and local, and local governments. 
Well, and, and that's right. So, I mean, a, re a real mix. We saw about 20 PPAs um, from large corporates like Amazon and Shell. There were council ones with the City of Sydney, City of Adelaide, Newcastle, uh, infrastructure in the form of Transurban. There were ones with retailers, Coles and Aldi. There were some manufacturers like Mollicop um, and hospitality. So I guess it's one of the one of the interesting facets now is that that you can find them really across a really broad range of sector, and they've they've sort of become an increasingly mainstream part of energy management in Australia. So tell us exactly what a PPA is. It's a power purchase agreement. It's an agreement to to take the offtake or take the output of a wind or solar farm, I presume, at an agreed price. Um, is that sort of roughly it? And are there sort of subtle variations to that? Uh, that's it. And there's many variations. There's a lot of, once you dig into it, there's a lot of detail. But yeah, fundamentally, it's an agreement to buy electricity and or the green certificates, the LGC, from a solar or wind farm. We, we tend to divide it up into two main segments, wholesale PPAs, which are signed directly between the project and the buyer, and a retail PPA where there's a retailer that um, sits in between the two. Uh, and I guess one of the trends we observed is the consolidation of the market really into those two big halves where the large buyers like to do wholesale PPAs because they get better prices generally. Um, and then you've got this growing mid-sized buyer market making uh, retail PPAs. So the interesting trend there is that um, you've got two key parts of the market, the big corporates and then the sort of aggregators, if you like, actually bypassing the big energy retailers. Uh, they're still going, well, I mean, I guess they're still going through retailers, although it, it tends to be, it's often the, the retailers outside, the sort of top three that are the most active in the market. So they're still working through a, a retailer where the retailer holds the agreement with the, the project and then they on-sell it, um, on-sell a parcel of it to, to the buyers, essentially. But I guess within that retail market, um, that's the one that's really growing rapidly in terms of agreements. And we see the sort of emergence of a real range of offers and models now from fixed price deals through to ones that are passing the wholesale price through in various ways to their customers. Um, and I think that's part of the, the, the secret is that you've now got a range of models that are starting to fit, I guess, the range of different buyer appetites for taking on, um, taking on risk. And we're also seeing some sort of fancy ones too. Um, I know that some uh, wind and solar farms are sort of basically obliged by their offtaker to switch off when prices go negative, for instance, um, as part of the deal. Have you sort of seen evidence of that? Yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly standard that there's a um, a deal that a requirement that the, the there's a flaw and they, so that the buyer isn't continuing to buy at that point. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's other interesting aspects starting to emerge. We're seeing a more sophisticated understanding on the buyer side who are starting increasingly to ask for minimum load matches um, between the, the project um, and a, a growth and interest in things like uh, firming to, to, to get a better match. So there's, there's, yeah, there's some interesting innovations coming out. So they're basically putting the emphasis on the, this retailer or the wind and solar farm developers to come up with a product um, that kind of um, reduces their risk in, 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 the, in the hedging. Because before, you'd, you'd buy the output from a wind and solar farm, but it might be at a time when you didn't necessarily need it. And when you did need something, then you have to go and buy electricity on the wholesale market, go through the retailer. There could be hedging things. So they, they want that sort of packaged up a bit more tightly now. Is, is that what they want? Well, I guess uh, there's a lot of diversity. I think it's still it's a bit of a 
you know, a thousand flowers booming situation where uh, <laughs> blooming, not booming, <laughs> where uh, uh, they can they can boom if they want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's an analogy in there somewhere um where like so some retailers will, will package it up to be as much like a traditional retail contract as as possible and so in the, in the periods where there isn't a match between the output of the project and the uh the, the consumption of the generator that uh, the consumption of the buyer they will provide a you know a fixed price for those periods um but others they're you know they're they're, they're they find that they're able to manage the spot exposure. They might have a bit of on-site generation or they get a high match and they're comfortable about the times at which they're, they're not going to be uh, matched up. But there is also, I guess, some buyers starting to ask for you know, genuinely 100% renewable PPAs, for example. Um, and, and I think everyone's becoming more aware of the importance of, of, of load matching. And you see firming you know, emerging at the project level. You see it happening at the retailer level. Um, there are financial products now to sort of solar and, and wind firming products. Uh, and then you see it on site with buyers themselves. And I, I think it's probably, you know, waiting to see what the best solution is. But there's, there's certainly a lot happening there. Mm. And so why are corporates doing this? Is it because they want to be seen to be green or they generally want to be green? Or is it just simply that um, the economics are there and they want cheaper prices? Yeah, it's a range of a range of all of those factors. Um, number one, sustainability. You've got more and more companies and, and governments with ambitious renewables targets. There's only so much you can get through on-site solar. You know, usually up to about 20%. Say, um, and so the only way really to achieve these ambitious targets is through a PPA. Um, that's part of it. Um, I think the second key driver is hedging and getting price certainty. So. If you can negotiate a, a fixed price for a longer term agreement at a, at a price which is good or acceptable, then you reduce your exposure to what is a volatile market and it's you know on the brink of an historic transformation. You know, as we see coal plant closures happening in years to come, undoubtedly there's going to be volatility and price spikes. Um, so if you're if you're able to negotiate a PPA, then you're you're reducing the range of outcomes for prices and you, you're getting better budget certainty. Um, thirdly, as you say, there's the scope for cost savings. I think that has narrowed somewhat. Um, I, you know, Simon Curry, in a week or two ago in a, in a podcast we ran, said that the, the gap between the wholesale price and renewable projects was probably the largest in the world in Australia in, in recent years, and it's narrowed with the, with the falling of wholesale prices. So you can still achieve cost savings, but it's, it's certainly much tighter than it was. So it's really the combination of those things, I think, really, the, the sustainability, the, the hedging, and hopefully also the scope for cost savings. So on one hand, the buyers who are the corporates, they like the price certainty from entering into a, um, into a contract. And so as you sort of say, they sort of reduce some of the volatility that, that would otherwise face. And I guess also the wind and solar developers, they also benefit from having that price certainty because it means that they can go to the banks and say, look, we've actually got this guaranteed revenue. And then that's actually considerably lower the cost of finance for those projects. And that's important because these are essentially upfront costs because once they're actually up and running, then they don't actually cost much to operate. But the, the key part is the upfront cost of the wind and solar and so therefore the cost of finance. Yeah, exactly. And what corporate PPAs have done is to really diversify the options, diversify the market. So you've still got um, your classic retailer PPAs and, and we might see them coming back in some form with the, the state government initiatives. 
you've got um, merchant, but you know there's very few I think willing to do that in the, the current context. Um, and you, you've got corporate PPAs, uh, and now I, I guess we draw a further segmentation, which is the public retailers. But yeah, that's right. I mean, the PPA is, is essential for projects to get away, and, and corporate PPAs are, are therefore playing a really important role. And what do you make of the new government proposals then? So you mentioned Clean Co in Queensland, and I think they're just sort of kind of outright sort of fixed price um, things. We'll buy electricity for a certain amount of time at a certain price, although I think they're sort of, I don't know whether they're very long-term prices. Then we're seeing the New South Wales government is sort of saying, well, you guys go out and get a corporate PPA, but then we'll kind of support you on the tail end. So they're kind of doing, they plan to do auctions, they plan to sort of, you know, provide a support price. Would you call it a subsidy or do you just sort of call it a just sort of a backup thing to help in that lower cost of finance? Because it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, wind and solar farms are telling us that they don't need a subsidy, but what they do need is price certainty, I guess, you know, to mm. lower that cost of finance. Yeah, one of the things we observed is the return of government over the past year. Um, obviously, it's been a pretty dramatic return in the last couple of weeks. Um, the return, we, of, st- we the return that, of state government, I think we should point out, yes. That's right, that's right. And local government to, be, to give them their due as well. Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting because you see really quite a range of roles that they're playing. So in, in Queensland, as you say, you've got Clinco, who's acting as sort of like a retailer intermediary, buying, signing PPAs and then on-selling capacity to, to end users. Um, in, in Victoria, with the VRAT, you see them acting as a, an anchor buyer, where they're going, to te- they're going to tender for their own use, but then they're doing market soundings to attach industrial users to that deal and, and should jump on it. Um, you see local government like uh, the City of Melbourne acting as an aggregator where they're, they're, they're helping bring buyer groups together. And then you've got the New South Wales approach, which, uh, as you say, what the, what the projects need is a PPA. And so they appear to be positioning it as, well, it's intended to be a, a sort of floor to enable them to go ahead and get finance. But clearly the intent is to um, encourage um, projects to negotiate PPAs with retailers and corporates. And I guess we'll have to see whether you know it acts as the floor or whether it becomes the market. Um, but I think it's really interesting, and I, you know, there's we see I've seen the label sort of return to central planning used quite a bit, and I, I think it's a little bit misleading insofar as we're not simply going back to a past with public integrated utilities. It's actually sort of a, these different blends of government and market. There's a term used for wage bargaining systems that sit between market-driven and government-determined. Um, coordinated decentralisation. And I think there's a little bit of that here where, where you've got governments using different blends. They're not simply taking control of the process. They're, they're trying to facilitate private investment and, and, you know, using different ways to do that. Mm. I'm not too sure I can... And in all of them. I'm not too sure I can fit... In all more. of them, corporate PPA is going to play a role. But yeah. I'm not sorry. Too, I'm not, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm not too sure I can fit sort of coordinated decentralisation into a headline, but um, I'll give it a go one day. I'll give it a go. <laughs> um. Not that catchy. <laughs> well, that's kind of the problem. I mean, it's been a big problem with energy efficiency, really. It just doesn't look sexy in the headline. And, um, you know, even though sort of, well, that's sort of a different story, really, but um, some things just don't catch on, um, even when they should. Um, and they're really often. There's overwhelming environmental and economic um, cases for them. 
What can you tell me about the prices we're seeing in the PPAs? And I guess we're talk, talking about the, the direct PPAs. Um, I mean, one of the problems with the corporate PPA market in Australia, and I don't know whether it's the case elsewhere in the world, but basically we don't actually get to see what the prices are. It's completely impenetrable. It's all sort of commercial and confidence. Um, to their credit, the ACT, about the only ones that actually revealed the pricing. Um, Victoria, I think, gave us hints, like they were, they told us what the base was, the starting point was, but not, not actually where the negotiations finished. And with the other direct contracts, um, we don't have a clue apart from the occasional boast from one very happy retailer or wind farm developer, but even then the actual details aren't released. I knew you were going to ask me this question. I don't have any any light to shed on it. I'm not on the inside of the, the rooms of these deals. We we do sort of education and training, mostly for buyers when they're coming into the market. So um, I don't have any, any further insight than you do, really. To, that would that would to have prices. to be the first. As you say, they're not transparent. No, they're, well, they're not. And it's a bit of a shame, really, because um, um, because you would have thought that, that was the first question that most people would ask. Um, one, if they're wind and solar developers, because they want to know how much they can actually get for it. And two, if they're buyers, because they want, want to know how much they can save but um i hear tell and let's just throw it open to sort of rumor and innuendo and um, and hearsay that um, i actually hear tell that some of the contracts particularly in queensland have actually gone as low as 33 dollars a megawatt hour 35 dollars a megawatt hour um simply because some of the wind and solar projects are just happy to have any amount of contracted capacity just to underpin their dealings with the um, with the bankers and so lower the cost of capital when they can kind of see the savings and it might make up the money elsewhere in the wholesale market um, have you heard something yeah. similar? Oh, I hear, hear the similar sort of stories, but I, you know, like I don't have anything firm to, to base it on. Oh, no, I mean, no, 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 we're just memes, they are, are <laughs> as, as I said, we're, we're open to a rumor and innuendo here, so anything you've heard. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly think if that's the, the prices they are achieving, then, um, you know, the reses in New South Wales, for example, where they're trying to set a floor, will, will certainly be very successful, won't they? That's well under, even, even under current sort of wholesale prices of around 40 to 50. That's, you know, pretty attractive, isn't it? Well, it is pretty attractive, yeah. And I guess you probably sort of caveat those sort of prices of 30 to 35, saying they're not necessarily the actual levelised cost of electricity. It's what people have agreed to contract part of the output. And that's, I guess that's always an important rider. Um, look into your crystal ball, Chris. Um, where do you think we're heading with the corporate market? Do you think that's going to continue to sort of play a critical role? Um, we're seeing uh, really great um, in, um, programs, um, like the one that John D is involved with, RE100, a whole bunch of companies signing up for those sort of things. I guess if you're a big corporate and you're going one, RE100, you're going to think about corporate um, PPAs. Um, do you expect the market to continue to expand and be a critical part of the Australian wind and solar development? Yeah, I, I think it certainly will continue to be a, a critical part. I guess it's always hard to predict year to year what it's going to do. It sort of it, it bounces up and down. We, we did a survey of uh, buyers, developers and consultants and asked them whether they'd seen a reduction in demand for corporate PPAs through COVID thinking that, you know, that was quite likely and we found quite modest results. Um, around 30% of, of developers and, and, and uh, consultants said they, they'd seen a, a decrease, but equal numbers said they hadn't seen any, any, any change. Uh, and, and we also surveyed to ask the buyers, you know, how many of them were currently looking into a PPA. And we found about four loads of around four to 600 megawatts currently looking at negotiating PPAs, and obviously our survey is only part of the market. So, I mean, that in itself, I think, is an encouraging sign. 
but as you say, I think the fundamental drivers are companies, more and more of them are signing up to things like the RE100, and that's a key driver. And I think uh, I think the other drivers, as, as we've covered before, is the the um, desire to reduce exposure and to re to increase the certainty. Um, and it's you know I think now we've got a a, a more healthy or or a developed uh, range of PPA offerings as well. So uh, I think they're absolutely going to be a critical part of the market, and, and the government issues are positioning them to be that. Um, you know exactly what it's going to be from year to year is is is, is hard to predict, but they're certainly they're certainly now an important part of the picture. Mm. And to what extent are the really big heavy energy users getting involved in this too? Uh, we did actually see Sun Metals, the zinc refinery up in North Queensland, announced last week that it's going to move. It's got a, its own solar farm there, which um, unfortunately has had a few sort of technical and sort of um, grid problems, but is going to, is supplying around about twenty percent, give or take um, a few constraints of its um, energy demand. It's going to move to eighty percent by. 2030, throwing in a wind farm there and get to 100% later on. That is a big energy user, like the second biggest energy user in the state going 100% renewables. Do we see much movement elsewhere in the really heavy energy user market? Yeah, there's definitely growing interest, um, definitely growing PPAs, and it's clearly part of how the renewable energy zones are intended to work. The governments are looking to use low-cost PPAs to attract industry and to underwrite uh, the projects. So I, I have no question at all. I think that that you're seeing the movement of big, big, heavy, heavy industries into PPAs in the next year or two. Mm, interesting stuff. Well, look, congratulations on your report, and thank you very much for your time today. I'm Chris Briggs from the Institute of Sustainable Futures. Thanks, Giles. Pleasure. And that was Chris Briggs from the Institute of Sustainable Futures. Um, David, um, look, it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, the renewable energy target came and went. It was well met. Um, it was not extended. So really, um, the wind and solar farms have um, been very, very happy to see the, um, the PPA market continue strong, um, a mixture of strong business interest and um, also support from local and state governments. So um, it's rather fortunate this, this has emerged. Yes, and I think the signs are that we're going to see ongoing strength. I think one of the things in the uh, report was that the Victorian government's prepared to sort of come in and, and, and make up the numbers or lend support. If you look uh, more broadly, what you see is that uh, customers uh, are not solely focused on price. Um, they're also quite conscious of their green or social uh, credentials in, in, in doing these deals. And that's often quite a strong motivating factor. And it's one of the reasons why we at ITK are so confident uh, uh, about how um, the, the economy will decarbonise, at least in electricity, because there's just such widespread support, community support, I mean, not just uh, state political support, but big businesses all around the world and, uh, and little businesses and households, we're all doing our bit. We don't actually need federal policy, although it would make a much better and smoother job. Uh, of it. The other thing I think that's interesting is that the traditional role of a retailer has been to buy long, to buy your wind or solar or coal plant and operate it and essentially sell shorter term contracts to businesses, typically of three years for want of a better number or, you know, three months if it's to a retail customer. 
But uh, the development of the PPA, corporate PPA market has forced businesses to contract longer, essentially taking on more risk than they're comfortable with. And they're willing to do this, I guess, because they see um, uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's worth it to get access to the products that they actually want. Another thing about it, Giles, that's uh, interesting, none of this would have been necessary if the big gen tailors hadn't so, so tried so hard to keep the market to themselves and control the market. And they, you know what it's proving is that if you don't give customers what they want, customers will look elsewhere. Well, that's exactly right. And that's one of the points that uh, we we raised with Chris, actually, in the interview, the fact that a lot of them were sort of going around the big gen tailors. Sure, some of them were going through retailers, but they're often sort of special, specialty retailers that have emerged and um, also sort of direct contracting. And just going further on your point about the demand from corporate and uh, big and small, we also saw today the um, the latest data from the rooftop solar installations, and that continues apace. I mean, we're going to get pretty close to, um, I think, uh, three gigawatts for the year, 277 megawatts in November, record installations in New South Wales, Western Australia, and even the ACT popped its head up as well. So... Um, Yes, I think I think corporate demand um, and household demand is going to pull through um, with the government um, fears to lead. And so this is going to cause, you know, we've been talking about and published Renew Economy ITK's view, and I think an increasingly widespread view that the uh, various bits of policy and and actually what what consumers are doing is going to lead to earlier rather than later. Uh, closure of coal stations. And as usual, uh, uh, when you, you think about the problems that that could cause, and the obvious problem would be if all the coal stations or several of them were to decide to close at once. Um, uh, they, and I, you, you look overseas to see what's been done about that. And Renew Economy had a good article this week about the first round of German coal closures, where uh, uh, essentially, the coal plants can bid in uh, to be compensated, uh, not particularly great compensation price, to, to close early. And, uh, you know, I think there's some, some studying to be done by the Australian system if we're to have continue to have a relatively orderly market. It's one thing to have a reliable guarantee, but another way to, you know, um, just to talk for five seconds longer, I, I think that myself that the New South Wales announcement over and above what it does uh, in and of itself to increase uh, uh, wind and solar, it's going to be this snowball effect that everyone's going to be able to see the writing on the wall now. And so uh, you're just going to see acceleration of the whole process, in my opinion. And we need to make sure that, the, therefore, there is an orderly uh, uh, closure of the coal plants. And it's time, I hope, that this is another area where the feds could actually be helpful if they wanted to, uh, is to is to work out the best way to do this. Yes, excuse excuse my chuckling. Um, I, I just can't imagine just sort of the idea of um, let's have an orderly closure of coal plants sort of being flo floated through the coalition party room. But look, you never, never know. Of course, um, it wasn't that long ago. Well, it was actually. It was probably a decade ago when we talked about the coal for clunkers or the cash for clunkers um, proposal as part of Kevin Rudd's CPRS, which he negotiated with Malcolm Turnbull. And I guess the issue there was this is sort of payments for the closure of um, um, or, or potentially payments for the closure of the brown coal generators. And I think the worry at that stage was there's literally, literally too much money going out for these sort of ageing assets. And what is interesting about the German auction 
is that the price paid for the closure was about one third of the price that had been expected and budgeted. So clearly there was a lot of competition for it. It's actually going to result in the closure of nearly five gigawatts of um, hard coal capacity, which is what they call black coal, um, similar to the generators we have in New South Wales and Queensland, over the next year, including at least two generators, which have only been open for about five or six years. So that's interesting enough. And um, um, one thing we haven't done, but it's probably worth doing at Renew Economy, is actually just sort of going through and just sort of telling up the losses that have been sort of um, gathered over the last um, over the last few months. Um, Stanwell had a huge loss um, last year. Um, we've ju- we've just discovered. Well, I think other people found out a couple of weeks before us, but we wrote about it this week. Um, the Blue Waters coal generator in WA, the newest coal generator in the country, um, basically had its value written off by one of its joint owners, the um, Sumitomo Corp in, in Japan. Uh, we saw uh, Trevor St. Baker's Vales Point coal generator. Um, they had a, a, a reasonably big fall in, in profit, not too bad, I suppose, in the circumstances. Uh, wrote down the value of it, but it's still well, well, well ahead of the one million dollars they paid for it just five years ago, and they gave themselves another sixty-two million dollars in, in in dividends. Um, but certainly, the, um, the the coal generators have been struggling. Uh, yes, and in fact, Origin, uh, which is quite realistic in the way that it operates, uh, it owns the Iraring coal power station, which is one of the two biggest in the national electricity market. And it's for a coal station, it's very flexible, it's very good uh, in that way. And uh, uh, we know that that's due to close in 2032. They've given us, you know, 12 years notice. Uh, But what they are saying is that as the renewable energy penetration increases, they're going to take, operate more in a campaign mode. And what this means is you might operate all four units in summer for the time being and then close one or two of them down for winter. So, I mean, even though there are only um, so many coal stations, I think eight uh, south of the Queensland border, uh, um, they they have a number of units that you can kind of close down. And I think for the black ones, (coughs) excuse me, it's more easy to do than for the Victorian brown coal generators, which are entirely inflexible and have relatively low Uh, variable costs, but high fixed costs. So if you close a unit down, you essentially push all the fixed costs onto the other units and make their closure even more inevitable. So uh, the process is starting already. That's the point. You don't don't need to be uh, Warren Buffett, uh, Giles, to see uh, the, the, the winds of change are blowing quite strongly at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And look, we're seeing a bit more action too on the international front. Um, lots of stories in the UK press about Boris Johnson's Tory government um, there announcing an even more ambitious uh, emissions reduction target for 2030, I think somewhere in the vicinity of 60%. Um, that, of course, is in the lead up to the Glasgow um, uh, conference uh, that they will host next year. Um, interesting stuff there. Look, if you do come across An- Angus Taylor over your cornflakes tomorrow morning, you might ask them if Australia is going to be sort of feel obliged to to maybe up their um, commitment or at least sort of clarify where they might be sitting. Um, because I, I, th- I think the pressure is going to increase on the Australian government. Um, and, and, and look, some people have been observing that since Joe Biden's um, election as president became sort of you know obvious, and um, and he's been he's appointed John Kerry as his climate ambassador and making climate change quite a big deal. That uh, there has been at least a subtle change in the uh, rhetoric of Scott Morrison and others, but um, obviously nothing tangible yet. 
No, that's right. And, uh, you know, the uh, cynic, not that we would ever be cynical here, Giles, uh, sceptical, uh, perhaps, but cynical never, uh, would suggest that uh, people like Boris and, and anyone are desperate to draw attention away from COVID and, uh, uh, and talking about green energy and aspirational goals. And, you know, we're hosting a conference and look, we're greener than you. Uh, we pretty much saw um, is, is, is the way to go. Uh, maybe we should get Australia to host one of these conferences and then we, uh, then we would have an announcement. But uh, um, look, I think, and I think uh, this, is, this is the electricity podcast and that, you know, I think the focus at, at federal policy level is going to have to move fairly soon uh, onto the other sectors of the economy. And, you know, there's so much benefit in doing that. If we were to have, as we said time and time again, a proper electric vehicle policy, it would increase demand for electricity that would help to keep uh, uh, the system running more smoothly and reduce our <coughs> oil import dependence, which is ridiculous. You know, talk about national security. Let's say we did get into a, I've said this before, a skirmish or something with China and, and, and the oil supply got threatened. That's, that's energy security for you. Nothing to do with bloody coal stations closing, which we can manage without. And we had some more bloody battery cars running off our natural solar, we'd have a much more secure country. Even even a Queensland politician should be able to understand that. Yes, well, unfortunately, the data that came out today showed that the um, share of electric vehicle sales in Australia um, was about 0.2%, I think, in, in November. Um, for the first time in 31 months, um, Car, new car sales actually rose in Australia, but most of it was sort of thrown at uh, diesel SUVs, diesel utes, and um, and uh, a few petrol hybrids, um, the RAV4 and things like that. But um, the non-Tesla EVs um, actually slumped quite dramatically, um, which is a bit disturbing. And of course, that's because there's no policy. Now, we actually had quite a good piece written this week by uh, Katan Joshi having a look at what the government may announce um, sometime soon. Not so much for the EV policy, but what they might call their future fuels policy. And sort of maddingly, I think it's going to be another sort of, you know, a technology roadmap for for um, for transport um, in the same way that they're talking about electricity grid, when really they could just do so much more uh, if they put the mind to it. Yeah, well, yes. And uh, so cars, we can already see the future overseas. It's easy to see uh, in a lot of ways, but... Um, and, we, and we'll inherit whatever happens overseas because we don't have our own car manufacturing industry. So eventually, uh, we, if everyone else has got electric cars, then Australia will have them too, even if we don't want them. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, another but area we, where we could do... Go on, Giles. Well, I, I was going to say, sorry, yeah, but, but we may get a few dirty clunkers on the way while we're waiting for them. But anyway, what we, go on. Another thing that we could do? Yeah, another thing that we could do is to have some demonstration projects in the... Uh, heavy industry side of things. I've talked about aluminium a zillion times, and that's an opportunity for state governments as well as federal government to get involved. Uh, but there's a lot of other heavy industry in the way of steel uh, and alumina, uh, uh, probably some big food processing industries uh, and things, things that are relatively hard to decarbonise but are important to Australia's past and future. Uh, where we, we, where you know, if the federal government was to provide the right signal, uh, I'm quite sure that people would get on board and get behind it in the way that they have everything else. It's the signalling intention, uh, as much as the actions themselves, uh, are, are very important here. But anyway, uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll still be talking about that on this podcast next year. 
I think we might well be indeed. Look, David, I think that's probably a bit of a wrap for today. Um, good to talk. Um, have fun down in the Southern Highlands and in the national capital. Um, I do hope you get to see some important people down there. Um, meantime, um, everyone, thank you very much to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Um, thank you to all our listeners. Um, do listen to the Solar Insiders podcast. Actually, a really good interview this week with um, Stuart Watson, who um, one of the solar pioneers in Australia, in fact, an electric vehicle pioneer in Australia. And um, he built an electric yacht, which he called the Solar Coaster, and um, that had a very interesting um event going out towards lord how Island. anyway look it's a really good listen um do listen to it if you can and we've also got a new podcast on the driven podcast as well on ev so um thank you david we'll talk again next week we will indeed giles cheers energy insiders was brought to you by pylon pylon provides easy to use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing no monthly cost and no locking contracts join australia's top solar companies who trust pylon to design high resolution cec ready solar proposals energy insiders was also brought to you by evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimizes the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.